Hello and welcome to episode three of the Wildlife Garden Podcast. I'm Ben. And I'm Ellie. And we're going to jump straight into the news for this episode. And so I've got a bit of personal news. Well, not personal, but I've actually pulled my finger out and decided to do a proper recording scheme. So I've signed up for the Bumblebee Conservation Trust Bee Walk. So I'm going to go out and start recording bumblebees this March. And how often do you have to do that? Once a month. Oh, at least good yeah um all i need to do is learn all the bumblebees oh you can yeah. do that yeah <laughs> how many um, are there oh there's 25 i think and um yeah but i think they they call they have what they call the big eight you know they're the ones you're most likely to see i've been pretty good on learning those so far but it's i, I bought an id book and it's quite confusing because they they exhibit what they call sexual dimorphism so the males are, look different to the females and often the female workers look different to the queens. Some, you know, for one species of bumblebee, there can be three different looking bumblebees and they're all of different sizes as well. So yeah, a lot to learn, but I'm really looking forward to it. So I've just picked a local park that's got a load of wildflower areas that were set up by the Wildlife Trust and uh, cool. yeah, it should be pretty good. And, and, it an is quite, and it's quite close to home as well. So you're not commit, over committing. To... Yeah, the f- I looked at Nottingham where we live and thought, you know, surely there's going to be lots of people doing this sort of stuff around. But certainly for bumblebees, there's a couple of transects out in nature reserves and along some of the waterways, but there was absolutely nothing in the middle of the city at all. Nice. So, and you are also making me pull my finger out and look into at least doing the same thing, but for dragonflies. But then there's how many? 50, 57, 56, was it? 57 dragonflies. So I'm just trying to show off yeah. by choosing a harder <laughs> subject, potentially. Uh, so what else have we seen around and about no in the last bumblebees week, yet? Um, it's been pretty bird heavy, isn't it? Oh, it has. Yeah. Well, they've been coming to our garden and... I think we've mentioned this before, but we've got a chiff chaff that keeps coming right to our kitchen window. It's quite funny because Ben's still never seen it, even when he's been stood next to me. And I don't think I'm making it up, but it really does. I think it's I think it's scouting for aphids. Yeah, what happens is I'm <laughs> I don't know what we're about the same height, but for some reason we've got a window looking out the back, and there's you know it's just got an openable top bit, so there's a bar across the middle, and this chiff chaff turns up on the rose. It hides behind that, and in Ellie your line is of sight. shouting about seeing this bleeping <laughs> chiff chaff, and it's always right behind the bar. And I, this has happened three times. I've never seen it, Even and it friends. was like what can I say? Twenty centimeters away from me. Yeah, but yeah. Oh, uh, we yeah, also well, speaking of things that. Ellie, I've also, this is to my shame, really, um, being that we're really interested in wildlife gardening and all the rest. I've never seen a sparrowhawk and I've never seen one, not because I've not been near one, but I think in episode one, we said that Ellie had one fly right across her face in the garden. But just the other day, we were driving back and I don't know why, like I just had to indicate or something like that, driving back from a job. So I looked to the right to check my mirrors and then Ellie looks left and there's two ruddy sparrowhawks just sitting in a field. It is true. I'm just more tuned in. What can I say? (laughs) I mean, you were driving, so I'll let you off on that one. But no, I've had some pretty good sparrowhawk experiences. I had one make a an attempt at a kill about five meters behind me in a in a garden we were working in very dramatic but yeah fantastic thing to kind of see and witness um but anyway we, also... we have seen i did see a female um goosander 
though not in our garden but just around the corner in a park that yeah, was really nice we've been uh, going out in the slightly milder weather and uh, visited a local nature reserve very famous one actually Attenborough Nature Reserve and saw loads of really good things mostly birds again but yeah wonderful like golden eye never seen a golden eye before oh that's a type of duck um stock doves as well which is uh in the pigeon family and but they do look slightly different and very beautiful creatures oh we also followed the gold crest reed buntings oh reed buntings oh we saw loads yeah loads of things before we crack on with the news for this podcast i just want to give a bit of a shout out for some lovely feedback that we've had now, one, it has to be said, does come from Ben's brother. Yeah. So we maybe take this with a pinch it's of the salt. the nicest thing I've ever heard from him. Oh, no, <laughs> we, we would like to thank Alex very much for this. But we like this as a strap line. And he said that this podcast is serious, hardcore science, knowledge, geekdom, but delivered very accessibly. So I thought we should take that, maybe put it on the website or something. But also... Um, Probably more reliably was a lovely message from a listener in London uh, called Caroline Bosher. So thank you very much, Caroline, for getting in touch. And she said that it feels like she's found her people in listening to us. So that's a really lovely message to get from someone. And she also said that she's trying to turn her tiny outdoor space into a wildlife-friendly habitat. She's even started a local eco-club and been making nest boxes for her neighbours, which is really, she's doing more than us. And she's also had the book that we're going to be reviewing later on in this podcast on her bookshelf for a while. So it's been a good excuse for her to get that up and read it. Yeah, so. our first official book club member. Yeah, so, well welcome, done. welcome, Caroline. Yeah, and if anybody else is reading along, get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. So should we do some news? Yes, my piece of news for this week. We'll see if we really believe this or not, but it is a good piece of news. Um, so the RHS do regular um, polls of garden owners in the UK and their latest one they found an increase in front garden greenery so that isn't necessarily an increase in front gardens but the amount of plants and green space in front gardens it's grown by an area 70 times the size of Hyde Parks in 2015. Wow that I mean that does seem very um, unintuitive when you walk around most local areas it does seem like a tendency to be uh, paving over front gardens rather than yeah exactly yeah, so the RHS, so they, well, they found that plant cover in front gardens has increased by almost, yeah, 40 square miles in five years. But one thing that we often notice, like Ellie says, is actually, you know, the number of gardens that are being paved over. But I wonder, we'll have to talk about this in a, in a future episode. But I think what's actually happening here is that there's a bit of a divergence going on in the gardening world. And I think people who are into gardens are getting more into wildlife gardening. But the people who are into low maintenance gardens are going no maintenance. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Definitely more astroturf, more block paving. A lot of gardens that you see just look like genuine, you know, indoor spaces, but on yeah, the outside, completely, sort of completely devoid of plants or anything. Yeah. So yeah. I think the people who are sort of the people who like plants are putting more effort into making their front gardens look nice. And that's going to have a brilliant benefit for wildlife as well, because as we keep saying, just the more plants you have, the better. And there's all sorts of other benefits as well in terms of reducing pollution and reducing sound uh, pollution from roads, you know, into your house and, and all sorts of stuff. So so are we saying we're going to 
say this is a good piece of news, but we're taking it with a bit of a pinch of salt. Is that yeah. fair to say? Yeah, but if it's accurate, and you know, I suppose there's no reason to assume that it isn't. It just might not be that we're seeing it. But if it is accurate, then it's fantastic news because for years now, there's been more and more bad news about the number of gardens being paved over, and maybe the message is getting through. Yeah. And the RHS have been running a campaign called Greening Grey Britain for years now. Yeah. And um, yeah, they've put loads of effort and maybe it's working you know it's it's brilliant so we'll put links to everything we're talking about with the news into the show notes um but if you are a homeowner and you are thinking about doing something with a front garden then the rhs also has loads of fantastic advice on their website which we'll link to about how to design a front garden that's good for you good for wildlife and if it is necessary that you park a car on it. How to design around that without completely getting rid of everything green. So yeah, yeah. do you recognise? I mean, yeah, it is cheaper to take your car off the road. That's in terms of insurance. So there is that incentive financially for doing that. But there are ways of doing that whilst also maintaining that green space. Yeah, and making sure you've got permeable drainage and all sorts of other things that cause problems further down the line as well. Uh, it's worth taking into consideration. Green your front gardens and look on those links for more information. Cool. My news is also quite good. It's relating to cats and their tendency, shall we say, to kill our wildlife. So there's a new piece of research into how to combine improving animal welfare in terms of, you know, how happy your cat is, but also reducing that cat's urge to hunt. So we're not going to go into loads of the background detail about cats right now because we were going to dedicate an entire podcast. It needs a to whole it. podcast. It needs yeah. a whole and podcast. It's quite a controversial topic as well. It's so very we're going to try and do it in detail and, you know, bring out the nuances of all this. The research essentially shows that feeding cats an all meat diet and removing any food which is bulked up with plant proteins, because some cat foods actually are, actually reduce the cat's tendency to hunt. So it wasn't stopping the cat at the hunting stage. It just stopped them wanting to go out and kill in the first place. Cats fed on this entirely meat diet were actually bringing home 36% fewer mouse and bird corpses. Yeah, and when there's something like somewhere between about 25 and 50 million birds a year are thought to be killed by cats in the UK. That's Uh, just birds. So actually it's 100 million animals a year when you look at everything so mice and frogs and lizards and you name it so yeah 36 percent is a is a big difference yeah so the thinking behind the feeding your cat an entirely meat diet is that you're essentially just meeting their dietary needs uh, more closely because they do need a a very particular mix of amino acids that they just might not be getting from the plant proteins the piece of research also looked at the effect of playing with the cat as well. And they found that 10 minutes of playtime in the evening actually reduced the amount of killing. And this was, is of mammals because that's what tends to be killed at night by cats by around 25 percent. Now, this didn't reduce the number of birds that were killed because bird hunting by cats tends to happen in the morning. But again, what they actually think is happening is that by playing with the cat for about 10 minutes, which is about the time it takes them to kill a mouse, you're just satisfying that natural need of the cat and almost wearing it out. You you know, the cat doesn't know any different. It's had a go at pouncing, at at 
at jumping and hiding from whatever it is you're playing with it. And it's used, I think they actually use a feather on a piece of string, which we used to use with our cats all yeah. the time when we were younger as well. They loved it. But yeah, so that's really, that's really positive, isn't it? Um, and I think, yeah, if, if more cat owners could do that really simple thing, then we could see a lot less um, wildlife being killed by them. Yeah, and again, we'll cover um, cats in more detail in a future episode, but this research is it's real peer-reviewed scientific research. Mm. So there's actually a surprisingly little amount of um, published papers about this. Yeah, and I'll just say that this particular piece of research was actually planned to be followed up with more research, and that is to see if the effects of playing and changing the, the cat's diet add together, because they kept them separate for this study. So if you fed your cat more meat and also played with it, does that reduce it even more? Which would be a really interesting thing to find out. Just going now on to some events that are coming up. Everything has gone online, of course, um, because, you know, we're all in lockdown again. But there's, well, there's quite a few events coming up. We're going to talk about... Lockdown actually works to our advantage in this because everything is online. So actually it makes it more accessible in some ways. Yeah, there's loads of free events that Mm. you can access. There's actually so many events that I can't cover them all now um i just won't bore you by reading the full list but they'll all be in the show notes some are paid for some are free but you just have to click on them to find out yourself each time we do one of these episodes i'm going to tell you the events for the next month um because some of these online events you actually need to book in advance and they have limited places so it'll give you a chance to sign up but we'll be doing this regularly so you know if there's any events in the future that you'd like us to plug um, as long as they're related to gardens and wildlife then we'd uh, love to know about them and then we can promote them as well just a few to get going with three that are coming up from garden organic which is a charity we're members of as we've said before we're professional organic gardeners and they are a a brilliant charity to um, follow and they give lots of good advice on gardening for wildlife as well they've got three webinars coming up in the next month one is called planning your growing plot uh, another is successful composting every time. Woohoo! Love and, composting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the last is first steps in organic growing. If you're new to growing organically or if you're new to composting, definitely worth having a look. Those are paid for events. They're all in the next month. But if you're a member of For Garden Organic, then it, you get a discounted price as well. Nice. In sort of the the world of bugs, then Bug Life, I've got some free events coming up. And this is part of a long running series that they've been doing over lockdown. But a couple that might be really good for you to do for your own garden are um, there's one called Pollinator Identification. So that's going to be really good for knowing what is coming to your flowers, but also um, creating, maintaining and enhancing habitat for pollinators. Those are a bit shorter. I think they're an hour long each. Uh, I'm not certain. I can't remember now. But yeah, there's loads more besides. And just have a look on our online list. Nice. I also like seeing how the number of events are rapidly increasing as spring approaches. It's very heartening (laughs) when it's so cold outside. Cool. Yeah, so moving on to our main topic of today, which is actually our book club uh, review or chat, whatever you want to call it. And a couple of weeks ago, we told you that we would be reading something that has shamedly been sitting on our bookshelf for a few months. And that is Nest Boxes, Your Complete Guide. And that's by the British Trust for Ornithology. Uh, It's written by David Cromack and it has a forward by one of my favourite humans, Nick Baker. 
Yeah, I didn't watch him very much when I was younger, but he now is also one of my favourite humans. Ben's a bit younger than me, so he didn't get the really wild show. He must have been on when I was a kid. Yeah. I think I've come to the wildlife world a bit late. But catching up rapidly. Catching up rapidly, exactly. Um, And this was actually not planned, but our review of this coincides rather neatly with uh, something I didn't know happened every year, but it's actually National Nestbots Week. Um, and we're recording today on Sunday, which also happens to be another particular day, a uh, special date in the UK calendar. I can't remember what it is, but whatever the case, National Nest Spots Week always starts on 14th the 14th of February. of February, exactly. And it goes on for a week. So this is the perfect time for be putting up nest boxes put up nest boxes as soon as you get them it's one of those things where people say what time should you do it well just as soon as you can really but um we're sort of before the nesting period really starts so yeah it's a great book to read for this time of year yeah and it is only 160 pages so i personally found it really good i did actually read this one all in one go yeah and half of those pages are pictures really oh, even better i mean yes no it is a very very good book and yeah, what we both liked about it is that it's both easy to read in one go, but because of the nature of the fact that it is a book telling you how to do something, it's also easy to pop in and out of. So when you actually come around to building some nest boxes, usually in winter, ready for spring, then you can just pick it up and go to the right page and, and get all the information you need. Exactly. The first half of the book, um, well, the first third really, is devoted to the basics of building a box. So it's got all the blueprints for nest boxes of different sizes. So going from small nest boxes with an entrance hole right up to open nest boxes, which are better for things like robins and wrens, and then to really big big nest boxes. Yeah, (laughs) barn owls. If you're lucky enough to get owls in your garden. Most of the book is actually devoted to uh, just fact files about different birds and all the birds that you're likely to find coming into your garden. Yep which we learned a lot from, and we'll, we'll talk about those in, in a second. So first of all, why would we be wanting to put up nest boxes in our gardens in the first place? Now, the sad truth is that as humans, we tend to uh, tidy up nature a little bit. And over the years and decades, we've done that so much that we effectively removed all of the good places for birds or a lot of the good places for birds to nest. And that's, you know, when you've got rotting trees, a lot of birds will take advantage of holes forming. When limbs fall off trees, you often get a hole forming. And it's those spaces, really, that we uh, that we tend to get rid of. Yeah, it's a bit sad, but nest boxes can be used as a way to replace those natural habitats that would otherwise exist. So what we would say, first of all, while nest boxes are really good, they are kind of the icing on the cake. And what was good about this book is that the first section of it really does tell you about all the ways you can actually just make your garden good for birds in the first place. And and that is through many different ways. And we always talk about planting trees, um, putting in really dense shrubs that give some protection and food, uh, such as pyracantha, hawthorn. Uh, If you're on a coastal location, you can put in barberry or berberis. And also ivy, which we'll be talking about later. And it really is a great plant just to give that protection for birds to nest behind. You can also plant trees which have berries, which are great for the birds like whitebeam and rowan. And you can make log piles. So that's just piles of dead wood in the garden. 
and they encourage lots of invertebrates to come around and all you're trying to do is provide as much food as possible so again we've covered this in a previous episode if you've got a big tree with loads of leaves and you can you're more likely to have lots of caterpillars lots of other invertebrates and that is what makes up most of the food for most species especially of small birds that are going to come into your garden during the nesting period. Yeah, so we'd always say that as well as the nest box, you just need to make your garden as rich and diverse as possible to give that structure and that food. And also, as we also keep saying, make sure you're giving lots of clean water. Yep, you can use tap water. Um, Ideally, you'd use rainwater. In this book, it actually has a sentence which says they discourage using tap water because it can contain uh, chemicals that are bad for the health of birds but i contacted the bto about this and you know asked if there's any specific research on this and they said basically no um tap water is actually probably okay but the thing is one certainly in nottingham occasionally we just run a glass of water and we find that it tastes really strongly of chlorine Mm, um almost swimming pool levels yeah and it's that's just when they're flushing the pipes through so you know if you're in the middle of the summer and it hasn't rained for ages and the only water you can put out for birds is tap water then that's absolutely fine Um, but if you do find it's smelling or tasting particularly strongly of chlorine you can just run it into a bucket and leave it out overnight and the chlorine will just evaporate off and then you can use that to feed up sorry to fill up the bird feeders yep bird baths and that is obviously better than no water so we definitely recommend doing that so we just wanted to cover we're not going to go into all the real detail of this book because we would like you to hopefully read it yourselves but we will just do an overview and I guess the 101 on nest boxes for for your garden so in terms of positioning nest boxes a lot of people do get quite worried about this and and there are good reasons to you know give it some thought in general most species of bird that visit gardens will nest at around two to five meters now There are in the book specifics according to different species, but that is the general range. So ideally, if you've got a tall fence or hopefully a tree or something, then you can actually you can position your nest box there quite easily. Um, In terms of which way it should face now in this country, I think most of us know that most of our wet weather tends to come from the southwest Um, And that's where most of the wind, you know, the wind will bring in the rain from that direction. So it is always best to avoid placing the entrance hole facing that direction, because all you're going to do is get a bit of a swimming pool situation inside the box. If you've got strange local conditions, it's actually always a good idea before putting the nest box up just to have a look at the local trees. And generally speaking, the greener, mossier side of the tree is going to be where most of the rain comes from. So if you can just avoid that as a general rule, that's quite a good way of really um, deciding where to put your nest box. It's also a really good idea to tilt the nest box slightly downwards, again, for the same reason, just to prevent the rain just from pouring in. And also a lot of the designs suggest drilling a couple of holes into the bottom of the nest box as well. And that just allows that water to drain away if it does happen to get inside the box. Yeah, in the blueprint designs, they'll tell you to drill the holes. But if you've, of course, you can just go out and buy a nest box. So if you go out and buy one and you get it home, there's no holes in the bottom, then I think they suggest getting a a five millimeter drill bit. Mm. Um, which is a small hole not so big that anything's going to fall through it basically but just get a five millimeter drill bit um, 
for drilling wood and just put a couple of holes in the bottom before you put the nest box up. Yeah, always a good idea. Now, it's never a good idea to put your nest box right in the midday sun because unlike us or sun creatures like me, birds do not want their eggs to be cooked inside their nest boxes and you just need a bit more protection from that heat of the day. Yeah, so, increasingly we we keep having warmer and warmer springs as well. Yeah. So even when the birds are nesting in May, you know, it can be really, really warm. And really if can. you're right in the way of the sun, it's quite easy for a nest box to, to warm up too quickly and to become so warm that the, the chicks just can't deal with it. Yep. So actually facing north or east is a really good idea. Um, away from the direct heat of that afternoon sun however in deep shade it's actually a good idea to maybe enable a bit of the morning sun to get to that nest box so you might position it southeast and that's just because obviously in in shade it's going to be colder and it'll just help warm up that nest box ever so slightly and because it's it's shaded by for example trees then it's not going to get the the direct sun of, of the afternoon mm. so we quite often have people saying oh you know nothing's visiting my nest box is it because it's too shady or it's because it's north facing no that's absolutely fine it's more important to have it somewhere where the nest box isn't going to cook in the sun than to have it somewhere really obvious indeed however saying that it's actually quite a good idea to leave a bit of a flight path for the parents coming to and from that nest box so if if there is a lot of dense vegetation in front then it's a good idea just to just to cut it back a little bit just around the entrance hole just so they can fly in and out yeah or put the nest box in a really spiky shrub then you know a cat's not going to sit in the middle of a pyracantha because it's going to be pretty uncomfortable in terms of the material wood is always the best you can buy something called woodcrete nest boxes now these are the absolute creme de la creme of the nest box world they they come at a bit of a price um they're really expensive but they last forever they do but in terms of homemade then wood is always best and and the book goes into lots of good detail about why uh, in general, definitely avoid MDF, and that's just purely because it tends to absorb water, which is obviously not, not good. And in terms of other things to avoid, it's a lot of proprietary nest boxes that you can buy from garden centres and things. They often come with a perch at the entrance hole. And to a human, I think, you know, we sort of look at that and go, oh, that must be really useful for the for the birds to land on before they enter and exit the nest box. But actually, in reality, the parents don't need it. And all you're doing is providing predators with a nice, helpful perch to sit on and predate the nest. Um, That's until you get up to big species like owls and some of the raptors, kestrels and things. Yeah, this is for the small. And also, I mean, we've seen some really funny design. In fact, in the book, there's a really funny design. It looks like the Ritz for birds. And it's this bird. Like a Swiss chalet. Yeah, Swiss chalet with feeding stations, a bird table and also nesting holes. And again, while that might look really fancy and nice to us humans, it's not a very good sign for any birds that are looking to nest there, purely because the amount of traffic of other birds coming to and from that that feeding station is just going to be disruptive to the fledglings developing in the nest and the parents being able to feed them. Yeah, imagine trying to go to sleep if you're living above a kebab shop at three o'clock in the morning. That's essentially what it would be like. Yeah. Yep. And starlings, you know, they they sound like a load of squabbling (laughs) party goers, shall we say. Yeah. 
And finally, another thing to avoid is metal nest boxes. Now, while some designs, again, might have the Instagram factor, you know, like old teapots, you quite often see robins nesting in. It's actually a really poor material for, for nests, purely because it, it, it heats up and cools down really fast. It tends to con- um, collect condensation as well, which can, you know, obviously damp isn't going to do any, any fledgling any good. So definitely avoid that. Wood, yeah, is all, just, wood is always best. You see the same thing for plant pots. You see people online say sort of, oh, you can make a plant pot out of everything, anything, you know, just recycle an old tin of beans or something like that. But, you know, you've got a, a wafer thin bit of metal between the sun and your soil and it's just going to fry the roots. So take some of this stuff that you see online with a, a pinch of salt and yeah, yeah just <laughs> make yourself a wooden nest box. Yep. Oh yeah. The other thing is, this is something to look for, or if you're making your own to also incorporate and that is to have some sort of access into the nest box. So like a hinged roof or something. Ideally one that you can sort of uh, firm shut maybe with a hook and eye, a hook and eye to stop squirrels from accessing the nest box. But this access just enables you to be able to clean that nest box. And that's a really good idea. Um, ideally, September is a really good time to do that after any parents um, and fledglings have left. And you can always watch out and just you know, watch your nest box for a few weeks and just see whether that's the case. But cleaning it out, um, it just means that you can get rid of any fleas and flea larvae and other parasites that can build up year on year. And you can actually um, compost your old nest as well. So nothing goes to waste in nature, which is always really good. Yeah, just put some gloves on, you know, be safe, wear a mask because if it, you know, if it's dusty and they can harbour pests and things like that. But yeah, just get your hands in there. Give it a, a tap out and uh, a scrub with a stiff brush. But that's it. You know, it takes, what, five minutes once a year. And yep. it just, it can make all the difference. It's about how often we clean our house as well. <laughs> five minutes once a year. <laughs> yeah, so that's like the 101. Um, and again, loads more detail in the book. We cannot cover it all here. But we also, we wrote down some of our favourite bird facts because... They really were fascinating, a lot of them. Like we said, half of the book at least is just these fact files of birds. So if you just want one book that's going to give you a start into understanding more about the life cycles of the birds that are coming into your garden, this is a great book to buy. It actually includes a little photo of each uh, bird's egg with a little scale bar to show you how big you can expect it to get, which was really interesting to me because you quite often don't get that in just your bird books. Uh, yeah it was really useful yeah so what were some of our favorite facts i think something that i'm now going to look out for and this is relating to blue tits is that in the breeding period the female actually produces hormones that causes the feathers on her abdomen to fall out and that area then becomes swollen with a rich supply of warm blood and that helps incubate the egg so if you see a tatty looking blue tit in your garden sort of featherless don't panic if it's in the breeding season because she's probably uh yeah warming up her eggs with that patch called a brood patch actually isn't it that's right brood yeah. patch. yeah yes staying on the tit species they the bto actually did some research themselves on great tits and like m- most species at that time of year they're constantly on the move looking for food for their chicks but the bto worked out the weight that the great tits are carrying home to their chicks and they sort of translated that into human scale. And they worked out that it's equivalent to bringing back 100 kilograms of food every day 
for three weeks. Whoa. Yeah. And we, well, actually, we thought that is just astounding. And then we thought, how much does all the beer weigh that we bring back from the supermarket? <laughs> Probably shamefully equivalent. Yeah. So I reckon um, one day a week we might get quite close to that. But <laughs> the rest is, but it's just amazing, you know, for for such a small bird. Yeah. Another fact that I really liked was about starlings. The fact is that they collect herbs to add to their nest material. And for quite a while, it was thought that these smells deterred parasites in the nest. But actually, it's been found that isn't the case. What actually happens is that those smells and and the herbs themselves stimulate the starling's immune system to better deal with parasites. People used to do this as well. I mean, they probably do in some parts of the world, but certainly... Uh, in the UK, there's a long history of using herbs, but they called them strewing herbs. And they're basically herbs that you threw on the floor. And part of this was that people really used to stink. <laughs> and so throwing sweet smelling herbs on the floor, which you then tread on and it would release the smell. To helped. point out stone floors, not carpets. That yeah, would probably not right, work. Yeah. Oh, it would work <laughs> on laminate flooring, probably. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, you see, part of it was just to make the house smell nice. But it might be that people also found um, that it helped keep some pests down as well. So, yeah, there's a history of humans using exactly the same technique. And one thing we've done, uh, we, you know, we don't throw them on the floor, but if you go out and collect um, sweet woodruff, which is a, a herbaceous plant, wild native plant to the UK. We will cover it one week. Yeah, if you detail. go out and collect it when it's green, it smells of nothing. But when you let it dry, it smells absolutely delightful it smells like uh oh, i don't know Freshly like a, mown hay. yeah like a, a whole day. exactly yeah <laughs> it's just such a sweet beautiful smell and yeah you just let it dry and then you can put it in with your clothes drawers and it um yeah i don't know about keeping away fleas but it certainly smells nice oh i've not had any fleas actually so i think it's working <laughs> <laughs> and then finally yeah well there's loads of loads and loads of facts but we'll just finish on swifts and this is actually important because although we just said it's good, it's a good idea to clean out nest boxes every September, do not do that with swift boxes. Now, if you're lucky enough to have swifts nesting on, in the eaves of your house, you'll know they nest quite high up. But you can get swift boxes, swift nest boxes specifically, but definitely don't clean them out because they often spend the first year preparing the nest so they'll spend all you know summer or however long it takes preparing the nest ready for breeding in it in the following year. And then they'll keep coming back to that nest when they know it's a good place. Yeah, I had no idea about that at all. No, I didn't realise this as well. Um, but yeah, definitely don't go clearing swift boxes. But yeah, I mean, uh, swifts are just absolutely incredible. So when they fledge, they go onto the wing and they then migrate down to their um, feeding grounds down in Africa. But they don't actually breed until they're three or four years old and they don't land after fledging until they breed. Whoa. And they migrate to Africa and back every year. Human teenagers don't move that much, do they? (laughs) So that means once they fledged, they will fly and they won't land again until possibly four years later. And that could be over 300,000 miles they're flying nonstop. Yeah, and while we're just on Swifts, yeah, I know we're talking about it for a little while, but... If you can get a swift box up on your house and you've got swifts in your area, it really is going to make a a really positive impact on their populations because more and more of us are renovating our houses and getting rid of those nice nooks and crannies and holes and things in in the sides of our buildings. So 
yeah, it's a it's a good good one to do. Yeah, whether it's in trees or in houses, nature needs more holes. More holes. That if you take nothing else from this section, more holes. So moving on to our native plant of the week, which this week is the ivy. The Latin for ivy is Hedera helix. And there's lots of different subspecies, but the two that you're most likely to find in the UK are Hedera helix subspecies helix, which is the British ivy, and Hedera helix subspecies hibernica, which is known as the Irish or sometimes the Atlantic ivy. In terms of where they grow, we all know that ivy grows all over the UK. The British ivy, certainly in mainland Britain, is the most common that you find. But the Hibernica subspecies is found generally on the West Coast. Oh, so it likes it a bit warmer, I guess, it, and wetter. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's actually found uh, in Europe down to southwest Spain. The British ivy, the subspecies Helix, is found, again, in all of the UK and Europe as far east as Ukraine. But in a common refrain, as we found from the last couple of weeks, there are ivy subspecies that occur all the way from Norway down to North Africa. Oh, the North Africa limit again. In the UK, it occurs naturally from sea level to around 600 metres above sea level. But you're most likely to find it in secondary woodland. It's actually a, a poor coloniser of ancient woodland. So oh. you're, mostly, yeah, you're most likely to find it somewhere where there's been a bit of disturbance. I don't think I... Yeah, I'm going to have to look, look out for this now. Next time we're walking in some ancient woodland... Part of the ivy life cycle needs quite a lot of light. So um, in order for it to grow up large enough to flower, it needs a good amount of light. So in a really enclosed um, woodland, it's perhaps not getting as much light as it needs to do. You still get it, but it just doesn't do as well. Lots of you, of course, will have seen ivy. But one thing many of you won't have noticed is that it has two types of leaves. So ivy grows in two stages. It has an adult and a juvenile stage. The juvenile stage is the young part, and that's the bit that you tend to see uh, climbing up walls, climbing up trees, crawling along the ground, and that's got the traditional-looking ivy leaf. If you're buying a cultivated ivy, you're generally buying an ivy in its juvenile stage because that's when you get all the variegation, you get the different leaf sizes and leaf shapes, and ivy is amazing in, in its cultivated form. You get leaves that are I don't know, a centimetre or two across, right up to leaves that are six inches across. It's Yeah, there's a real diversity in terms of the cultivated forms. And so it grows as this juvenile stage, but then there's some changes in the amount of DNA in the cells, in the plant tissues, which cause it to turn into its adult stage. The adult stage happens generally when it's grown tall enough. If you imagine a tree that it's growing up, it grows up to the top of the tree and then it bushes out and then it flowers and where it flowers that's the adult stage of the plant the juvenile stage it produces what we call adventitious roots and these are the clinging roots that everybody has seen on ivy they aren't taking in nutrients in general that's all they're actually, doing is clinging say that's a really that's a really important point which i think you're talking about a bit later that they don't parasitize the trees they're growing up it might look like these roots are capable of taking nutrients for up from them like any other root, but that's just not the case. Yeah, exactly. So they, they're just to hang on, basically. And loads and loads of plants produce adventitious roots. You might have seen if you've got a climbing hydrangea, something like that, then they're all producing adventitious roots as well. So once uh, the juvenile stage has grown up, then it turns into an adult and it flowers and a flowering plant generally starts 
producing flowers around August time and it can continue as late as November in a good year. It's got a really, really long flowering period. I think a lot of people do maybe already know that and I've seen in lots of wildlife gardening groups on Facebook, everyone seems to be a proponent of ivy for lots of good reasons and it is this flowering season that is, is really important for wildlife, isn't it? That's right. It's fantastic for late flying pollinators and if you stand under an ivy in... I don't know, late October, early November, and it's warm. It just, it's just thrumming with life. It just sounds absolutely amazing. It's a bit of a free fall, isn't it? Like a big, like a banquet. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it's the last big um, flush of pollen and nectar, certainly amongst UK native plants. So it's the last big hurrah, really, before they bed down for the winter. Mm. In terms of its history, Ivy's actually had a really long association with drinking. Oh, like lots of English things. Yeah, I mean, exactly. In a pub, you get, you know, a pub sign hanging outside. Well, this wasn't always the case. In medieval times, they used to use what they called an an ale stake or a or they called them bushes. And these were basically just poles covered in ivy. And if you had one of these poles outside your house, then it indicated that you were a pub open for business. Um, But these sort of poles became a bit competitive. And in 1357, there was actually an act of parliament to restrict their height to seven feet. Yeah, so woe betide you for having a longer than seven foot (laughs) pole outside your pub. Yeah. How funny. Nice. It's Britain's only evergreen climber but it can grow as uh, a climate but it can also grow as a freestanding tree and sometimes the wood becomes really thick and it can be thick enough to turn and so apparently the the wood itself was wood of choice for making rolling pins oh that is interesting yep. why was that uh, well apparently the pastry doesn't stick to it very easily huh. So now we're going on to what has turned out to be one of the most popular parts of our podcast so far, which is the sexual antics of the ivy plant. So popular that we've a little jingle to go along with it. So on to the sexual antics of the ivy. So just like the primrose we covered in episode one, the flowers are hermaphrodite. And also like the primrose, they've got an interesting way of preventing self-fertilisation. Primrose has these pins and thrums, which stops the pollen going from um, the male to the female part within a flower. Ivy does a similar thing, but in a different way. When an individual flower opens, it's only the male part that is mature. So the flower opens up and the male anther is there with pollen ready to be collected by insects. Yeah, and because ivy is insect pollinated, it's probably good to point that out. So the male part is out, but the female part is immature. It hasn't fully developed yet. The anthers are bright yellow, and they stay open for one to three days after what's called anthesis or anthesis. I'm not exactly sure how you say it. It's a new word to me, but it basically is a botanical term for the start of flowering. While the anthers are present, the female stigma is maturing. So after these three days, the anthers fall off. But then, because the anthers are bright yellow, the flower needs a new way of attracting insects in. So what it does is it actually starts to glisten. Oh, how lovely. Yeah, it produces a different set of chemicals that make the flower glisten, and it starts to produce nectar in more abundance then. So that's the reward for insects coming while the 
female part of the flower is open. And hopefully laden with the pollen from the anthers of a different plant. Exactly. Although the, the flowers are hermaphrodite, by having the female and the male parts open at different times, it's allowing pollen from a different plant to access uh, the female part of the plant in question. Once the flower has been pollinated, it sets seed. Um, and if you have a look at uh, an ivy bush, you will know that they produce a big black berry. And amazingly, we heard this on Spring Watch this year for the first... No, sorry, it was Winter Watch this year for the first time. These berries have more calories, gram for gram, than... Was it Mars bars? Yeah, a chocolate bar. But yeah, I think it was a Mars bar that Chris Packham had. But they, they're just incredibly packed full of calories, aren't they? And they've actually got a really high fat content. Yeah, I fat read. and protein. Mm. They're just... They're brilliant and they're absolutely loved by loads of birds. So, I mean, pigeons just go nuts for them. It explains why pigeons are so fat. Yeah, that's true. In the winter. They yeah. tend to eat all of the all of the ivy berries in our yeah. garden. Yeah, but they're also loved by a lot of the thrushes. Blackbirds are a thrush species. And in the winter, they congregate with several other thrushes that come over only for the winter. So these are winter migrants like redwing and fieldfare as well. I was actually walking up to a park the other day and I saw a big ivy bush in someone's garden absolutely full of red wing. Nice. Yeah, there's been a lot in the city. I think the extra cold weather recently has pushed them away from the countryside into the city where there might still be a lot of food left for them. And That's right. probably with, a bit warmer as well. Yeah, with red wing and uh, field fair, you find that they're really skittish and afraid of people early in the year. But as they get hungrier and hungrier, they get less bothered and they start coming more into gardens. So these berries are eaten by a whole load of different birds and then they're just distributed in the droppings of the birds. Um, ivy is one of those plants that it needs the, the coat, so this is the actual fruity bit of the berry, to be stripped off as it goes through the gut of a bird before it can germinate. If you took an ivy berry and just stuck it in the ground, it would be inhibited in its germination by this coat around the outside of the seed. So it has to go through a bird. But what that means is, because they tend to eat quite a lot in one go, in one dropping, you get a lot of seeds. And so in nature, what you find is that um, ivy tends to grow in colonies. So you'll get lots of seeds germinating from one set of droppings, um, and they all grow together at the same time. And the final thing in terms of how it propagates itself is that Although you can find ivy all over the UK, it actually doesn't particularly like cold weather. So it is fine, it is hardy, and the, if it gets colder in steps, it can in induce frost tolerance in itself by changes in hormones in the stem. But there are populations in Sweden and northern Russia where the average winter temperature is so low that it never reaches the adult stage at which it can flower. It can also propagate vegetatively. So what we mean by this is, in these populations where you get ivy creeping along the ground, if it's chopped off from the parent, there are collections of cells along the stem which can turn into real roots and they can go down into the soil and then you can get another plant that way as well. Yeah, that's a really good, well, we always talk about vegetative propagation, taking cuttings and whatnot, but ivy is a really easy one. And if you do want more ivy in your garden, you can just take one of these juvenile stems, sort of lay it on some moist uh, compost and then hopefully it'll uh, root along its length and then you can cut that up into new plants. Exactly and it's this vegetative propagation which means that that's why most of the plants that you buy in a nursery are of the juvenile stage because it's juvenile plants that they're taking the cuttings from. But of course you would want loads of ivy in your garden because they're absolutely brilliant for wildlife. 
Yeah, so there's so many different things that use ivy, and we, we've already talked quite about quite a few of them, I think, in the last section. Yeah, so apart from the birds, they're really, really great for loads of invertebrates. They're particularly popular with the diptera, which are the flies. And before, you know, if anybody out there doesn't particularly like flies, that includes the hoverflies as well. And we have seen thousands and thousands of hoverflies buzzing around the ivy in our garden. But also the hymenoptera, which includes all the wasps, the bees and the ants. And, you know, at the beginning of this episode, we also said about how important it is to provide food for insects, which then also provides food for your birds and other other creatures. So ivy does everything because it also provides food for the birds, as we've already said, with the berries. And yeah. Yeah. And just because of its structure... It's also great for insects trying to overwinter. You know, it gives lots of little hidey holes where they can tuck in away from the frost. And we often find ladybirds hiding away in ivy. Loads of different species we've found just trimming little bits of ivy away just from a window the other day. I mean, we're only cutting a a few inches away. And I think I found four or five different species. And we're definitely no experts on ladybirds. But I also at this point just want to give a shout out to another podcast out there called Hidden Wings and Bloodlust, which is exclusively about um, ladybirds. And I got in touch with her and asked if there were any other um, ladybirds that are known to be associated with with ivy. And through various other people she put me in contact with, um, it turns out that ivy is really fantastic for lots of different species of ladybirds. So yeah, we'll put all of those in the show notes. I mean, in terms of gardening, they're really good as well, because one predates largely on whitefly, uh, one of the gardener's nemesis, and another on scale insects. So yeah, Yeah, both pests in the garden. Mm Mm-hmm. And just finishing up the ivy wildlife bonanza, ivy leaves are one of the larval food plants for the holly blue butterfly, which is an absolutely beautiful butterfly. Um, It's called the holly blue, but it comes on holly, ivy, several other plants as well, but also for the caterpillar of the swallowtailed moth. And we've said it on this podcast before, but if you've got half an hour to look up some of these moths, they are just so beautiful. And the swallowtail moth is just, it's just a stunner. Yeah. Real, real stunner. So if you want to grow it in your garden, there's hundreds of cultivars. Like I said, the leaves come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. What you're buying is the juvenile stage, which means that if you want to grow it up something, it's going to give you that same leaf style for a long time. Um, some are more vigorous than others. So you, like I said, you can grow them on a wall in the garden. Um, if you've only got a short wall, try and find a cultivar that isn't going to grow as vigorously or vice versa if you've got a, a large wall to cover. In terms of the soil it likes, it favours moist and rich soils. So if you want it to grow really strongly and turn into that adult phase, which is going to have the flowers, then if you've got a moist, rich soil, that's great. It will take dry soils as well so just try and keep it watered especially as it establishes in your garden they're fairly unfussy you know if you're just growing them for the leaf color or for the leaf form then they'll grow in most soils and they're not fussy about ph either so a ph down to four which i mean hardly any soils in the uk have a ph lower than four so acid or alkaline it's absolutely fine yeah really versatile plant that can look really good as well and and covers Things like fences and trellis, you know, bare patches on walls really, really quickly as well. In fact, in various gardens that we work in, we've actually put in a series of, um, this is going back to the nest boxes um, 
topic really but we put in a series of sort of very shallow wooden shelves on fences and then allowed ivy to grow up that and all that does is provide just an extra bit of ledge um, for something like a robin to actually build its nest on and then the ivy the idea is that it would grow up and then give that nest a bit of protection and that's a really good way of providing more habitat for nesting birds. Okay so the final thing I'll say about ivy is why aren't more people growing it? Well possibly because it's seen as a bit of a thug and a bit of a pest in the garden. It's important to remember, like Ellie said, ivy is not a parasite. It's just using whatever it's growing up as support. Um, so if you've got a healthy tree, the ivy is not damaging it. Where it can cause a problem is if you've got an already unhealthy tree, particularly that's not producing a lot of leaf, because then it's not casting a lot of shade. And like we said, um, ivy doesn't uh, grow well in ancient woodland established woodland because there's too much cover so it grows too slowly so what that means for your garden is if you've got a bit of ivy growing up the stem of a tree and it looks nice and it's thick enough to birds to nest in just leave it it's absolutely fine even if it gets into the adult stage and it's flowering then again there's no problem at all the only time it is a problem is and you do see this in photos of ivy on trees if there's more ivy than tree and you can see that the you sort of snap a, one of the branches or twigs and you can see that it's dying back, mm. that's the time to cut the ivy back. This, this actually happened to us in a garden just this week. It's a new garden that we're looking after and uh, there's a couple of apple trees and only one of them, interestingly, has this situation where there's more ivy than tree. So although we love ivy, we decided that we should probably reduce the volume of ivy from this tree. And while I was at the ladder, I realised that the apple tree had very little living uh, material on it still. So It was actually, already badly cankered, wasn't it? Was it was already badly cankered. It was obviously older than the one next to it. And it's just really interesting to think that the, the ivy is just taking advantage of that um, vertical uh, growing space, basically. Exactly. And that's and it, what would happen in nature. You yeah. know, a tree slows down. And it gets colonised by ivy. That's absolutely fine. If you've got a small tree in your garden and apples are grown on dwarfing rootstocks sometimes, then yeah, there can be more ivy than tree. And there is no harm in cutting it back. But when you cut it back, there's no reason to cut it right off at the ground and completely kill it. You can just give it a really hard hack, get all of that ivy out of the centre of the tree, but then allow it to regrow a bit. You know, if, you, if you're growing it for the leaf, and again, it's the leaf, that is really good for the holly blue butterfly, the swallowtail moth, loads of other species, then it's fine to allow it to grow back a bit. Yeah, and we also would only advocate really cutting ivy back hard at this time of year. Because if you, even in a month's time, you're going to get nesting birds that have probably already found where they want to be nesting. So you're going to risk disturbing those. So now's really the last chance it you know to cut ivy back from a tall tree if that's what you need to do yeah you've given if it's flowering you've given the birds a chance to get at the berries already this year and it's like i said it's before nesting but also by cutting it now it might have a chance to grow and still flower next year so yeah the best time to do it if you've got ivy in a hedge you can find that it overgrows the hedge as well and this is something actually we see more of a problem with than trees um you see ivy growing right through a hedge and it can strangle it a bit so again just keep an eye on it and if you've got more ivy than the other species in there then just cut it back a little bit but finally onto walls there's this conception that ivy is absolutely terrible for walls and there's been loads of research on this and shown that that's just not true if your wall is in good condition 
then ivy won't put roots into the the brickwork it will just root in at the ground level and it will cling on and it will just use those adventitious roots to grow up the side of a house the problem comes if your brickwork is in poor condition before it arrives and ivy can arrive of its own volition like we said it can arrive in the droppings of a bird and if you've already got loads and loads of cracks in your walls and it gets a dropping in there and the real roots of the ivy grow in actually into the wall that's when it causes damage and in that case yes it probably is a good idea to get rid of the plant and probably time to fix your walls (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) um of course there are the odd case where the ivy is the only thing keeping the wall up (laughs) oh that's happened to us before now as well (laughs) yeah so sometimes you know just don't touch the ivy because that's the only way to keep your wall safe but there are actually many positive benefits for having ivy growing up your walls and that's because again there's lots of research on this including some by the rhs which we'll link to but they've shown that in the summer it can significantly cool the indoor temperature of your house by having a layer of ivy on the outside and in the winter it reduces the humidity inside so you know you're preventing damp in the winter you're preventing overheating in the summer it's absolutely wonderful. It has all the benefits of a green wall, which is something that is, it's, it's not necessarily a buzzword, but people are talking more and more about it. It's quite a few restaurants in Nottingham with green walls, but they tend to come at a really hefty price because they're fully irrigated, you know. They take loads of power. They're really expensive. Yep. They do look really beautiful, but actually the cheapest and most effective way um, of having a green wall is just to grow some ivy up up it. And they've also been found to be fantastic at cleaning air as well. Ivy is one of those plants that is often recommended because it can trap small particulates. So if you're next to a busy road and you've got a wall in front of your house or a hedge, you know, that's got ivy growing in it, maybe don't worry about the ivy, you know, allow it to stay there and it's cleaning the air behind the hedge. You know, it's literally cleaning the air in your own garden. Yeah, we and it also looks really beautiful. We drive past a house that is completely covered in ivy, bar the windows, obviously, where the owner obviously meticulously cuts it back probably a couple of times or a few times a year um, and also away from the guttering and the roof. And it just looks amazing. A proper green wall that is trapping particulates, keeping that house cool and dry. And yeah, just looks looks wonderful. Well, yeah, that concludes this this week's episode. Thank you, everyone who's listening. Please don't be shy. Get in touch. We've got lots of ways that you can. Uh, you can either email us directly. So that's thewildlifegarden at hotmail.com. You can get in touch on Twitter. And our Twitter handle is forward slash thewildgdn, all one word, obviously. And on Facebook as well. So facebook.com forward slash thewildlifegardenpodcast. Drop us a message. Tell us what you've seen. Tell us, like Caroline Bosher, all the amazing things you've been doing in your garden. We'd love to hear from you. If you are listening on one of the um, podcast apps like iTunes or Amazon Music, Google Podcasts or the Podbean app, please give us a review on there. That would be really great if you'd like to leave us a good review. Yes, good reviews only. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they just, um, with these places the more good reviews you have the more likely they are to suggest us on to future listeners so yeah. yeah if you'd like to leave us a review that would be wonderful and i think well the last thing to do is to introduce our next book isn't it so in a month's time because we're going to be doing this once a month we will be reading in the next month and then talking about 
Wildlife Gardening for Everyone and Everything. And that is written by the guru in, of wildlife gardening that is Kate Bradbury and published by the Wildlife Trust. So if you can get yourself uh, a copy of this and maybe read along in the next month and then we'll be talking about it in two in four weeks. Yeah, we're choosing this book because the topic of the next episode is going to be what is wildlife gardening? Yeah, we're going back to the beginning four episodes in. We just thought... You know, if you're new to wildlife gardening, maybe all of this is completely new to you. And, you know, going technical about the right way to put up bird boxes and feed your birds and all this sort of stuff is interesting, but you might just want a bit of a, an overview. So yep. that's what we're going to do. Bab, I think that's uh, enough for today. And thank you for listening and goodbye. Yeah, bye. Bye.